Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Amidst the cacophony of social and cultural noise that's all around us, we have too often neglected the role of the arts in shaping who we are and how we might be better or at least different. Like almost everything else, we tend to commodify the arts, everything from streaming revenue to box office grosses to the price of paintings at auction. I would argue that what we don't do enough of is look deep into the artists themselves, artists who, by the very nature of their work, must keep their emotions closer to the surface. And in so doing, we can see how their work reflects the best and the worst aspects of our culture. Mike Nichols, was such an artist. In a multi-decade spanning career, the films and plays he directed have in some ways impacted us all. In the early comedy of Nichols and May, to the social insight of films like The Graduate, Silkwood, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Catch-22, to his plays that reflected who we were in the human comedy. He not only understood his art and craft, but valued other artists, specifically actors and writers as creative tools to help him help us see the world. My guest, Mark Harris, gives us all of this in his new biography of Mike Nichols. Mark Harris is one of our premier chroniclers of the art of film. He's the author of Pictures at a Revolution and Five Came Back, and is currently a writer for New York Magazine, where he often covers the intersection of culture and politics. It is my pleasure to welcome Mark Harris back to this program to talk about his new book, Mike Nichols, A Life. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. When we look at the, the career and the work of Mike Nichols, even though so much of it is feels contemporary, a lot of it feels almost anachronistic, as if Nichols truly was a director and an artist of another time. Talk about that. Uh, well, in some ways, that's certainly true. I mean, uh, you know, his career was so long that when we talk about Mike Nichols, the director, um, we're, we're talking about uh, work that, that first started in 1963 uh, with Barefoot in the Park on Broadway and, and a film career that, that first began in 1966 um, uh, with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? So, uh, and yet at the other end, um, you know, his, his last movie was um, Charlie Wilson's War, um, one of his last big uh, popular successes on stage was Spamalot. Um, so, so it's really a sort of extraordinary uh, span of work, you know. To, to, he's worked with everyone from from Elizabeth Taylor to to Natalie Portman, and and from George C. Scott and Richard Burton to uh, Jude Law and Philip Seymour Hoffman. So it's a 20th century life and a 21st century life. I guess what's different is is that he never was a writer. He never really subscribed to to being the auteur. He he did it in in his own and very different way. Yeah, uh, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, when when we think of the directors uh, that we talk the most about now, with a few exceptions, um, the, they write their own movies. I mean, there there are exceptions and major ones, but a lot of people are writer directors now. That was not something that Mike Nichols was ever interested in. And one thing that really marks his career from the beginning is. Not just that he's interested in working with actors, but that he's interested in working with um, writers, whether it's playwrights like uh, Neil Simon and uh, David Rabe and Tom Stoppard, or uh, screenwriters like Nora Ephron. I mean, he really he didn't view screenwriters as a necessary evil or an inconvenience. Uh, he 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 viewed them as separate artists and and viewed his own job. Uh, in a way, as as serving their 
vision. He he once said that the way he defined style was to uh, take whatever uh, work had been done by a writer and um, present it, whether on stage or on film, in a way that made it believable. Um, and that's that's really something uh, that that uh, sets him far apart from from other directors. Was he serving their vision, or was part of his genius? the way he could get both actors and writers to serve his vision of the work. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, Mike was not subservient in any way, and, and, and not modest, uh, certainly. Um, but he was also smart enough not to um, try to bully anyone uh, into uh, seeing a, a project his way. I mean, he he knew what he wanted, and, and, and that's really uh, true from the very beginning, even, even with something uh, like uh, Barefoot in the Park in 1963 or Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on film in 1966. He said even then that he, he almost surprised himself by, by having a very sure sense of what it was supposed to be. But how to get there... Um, he also understood was a process of collaboration um, that, 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 you know, he had his, his hand on the wheel, uh, but, but he also knew that to, to get to his destination, he had to figure out a way to talk to each actor uh, in the most helpful possible way to collaborate with cinematographers and editors, which was a very important relationship for him. Um, and to, um, to make sure that uh, the, the the writer was feeling good about what was done and was also doing his best work. I mean, uh, Mike did not believe that every word of a script was sacred, but he did believe that the person who was best to um, the script was the writer himself or herself, not him. Given how collaborative he was, given all the personalities that he had to deal with, talk about the ways in which that impacted him, both in terms of his public and private persona, that there was so much of himself that was invested really in the art of others. I think Mike was uh, nourished by other people. You know, um, he had these, uh, he had a, a sort of tough set of personal circumstances at the beginning of his life. He was an immigrant. Um, he spoke no English, arrived in New York at seven, um, was bald because of a reaction to a vaccine and, and, you know, experienced all of the humiliation and, and bullying that went with not looking or sounding like other kids. Um, so he once said that, uh, it took him three hours to become Mike Nichols every day. He told the actor George Siegel that. And Mike said that that effort at self-presentation could exhaust him so much that sometimes he just really needed to sleep and to, to kind of not be a person, not be a public person uh, for several hours at a time. But I don't think that collaborating with other people ever exhausted him. I think it was the opposite. I think that when he was sitting in a room working with actors or working with a writer or working with a whole creative team on a play or uh, a movie, he was energized by it. I didn't really find anything in my research uh, to suggest 
that he ever had the experience, even on a difficult production, of saying, oh, I just can't stand any of these people anymore. <laughs> I, I don't want anything to do with them. That is just, that's not the way he was wired. That's not the way he thought. Talk about that exercise of becoming the public persona. It's very, I mean, partly because of the Broadway connection, it, it, it's very Bob Fosse-esque in a way, that sense of, you know, every day is showtime. Uh, I, I think so. You know, I, I've I've read a couple of things that say in an almost accusing fashion. Well, you know, he was one person uh, publicly and put on this incredibly composed uh, human face, but uh, privately he was another person. And first of all, who isn't like? We all do that, you know. We we all have a sort of game face that we put on for the world, and 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 we're someone a little different when when we're in the privacy of our own, you know, kitchens or living rooms. Um, and and second, you know, the effort to compose yourself, the effort to have to um, uh, make yourself into somebody who you think is suitable for public consumption, which uh, on Mike's part was a considerable effort every day when he was young, does not mean that you're um, a phony or a poser. It means that uh, you face special challenges in figuring out what you need to do to survive. And I think for Mike, particularly early in his life, it really did feel like a matter of um, survival to to master this version of himself that he could present um, to the outside world that was everything he didn't feel like he was on the inside, you know, composed, polished, witty, uh, urbane, suave, and 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 then he really, over the years, became that. I mean, you know, the, the outside and the inside uh, became a lot more in sync than they had been when he was very young. Is that a clear arc in, in his life, that, that those two things came together as he grew as both a person and an artist over the years? You know, I think it's it's a, a, a gradual process and not necessarily a purely linear one. I think, um, as for a lot of us who try to make progress on certain aspects of our own lives, uh, two steps forward, one step back, um, it's making the same mistake over and over and over again, but eventually recognizing the mistake and, and uh, realizing it and then maybe not making it more. Um, you know, so... So I think that that Mike's evolution into the man he became was was really incremental and and late in his life he talked very frankly and openly about some of the struggles he had had uh not only with things like depression but with with issues like uh you know, a, a mean streak or a cold streak. Mike, when he was under a lot of pressure, could be nasty, for instance, to um, uh, someone on on uh, a film crew or a minor actor. And he really, really disliked that about himself. And it was something he worked very hard and I think ultimately successfully to... Um, to overcome. Uh, it, it was something he tried to understand about himself as the decades went on. And, and I think that's, you know, a really admirable journey for anyone to, to look honestly at, at what you don't like about yourself and, and what behavior uh, kind of mortifies you uh, and, and to, to really strive to understand it so that you can change it. Did he like being a public person, a celebrity of sorts? Uh, um, I think he did. Um, I, I don't think that uh, 
Mike was necessarily hungry for um, fame or for attention, but I think he really enjoyed recognition in, in both senses of that word. I think I think he he liked um, being recognized on the street, um, and he liked being recognized for his work. You know, being being honored for his work. Um, I don't think that he had a particular appetite to be famous, except because it made um, getting the things that fame could bring you uh, much more accessible, you know, whether it was access to the other people he wanted to know or professional opportunities. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't think he was one of race the nearest camera or microphone and, and be particularly hungry uh, for, um, you know, an opportunity to, to put himself forward publicly. I, I mean, we should remember that uh, he's someone who, who really said repeatedly that he only found the, the destiny of his professional life when he stopped being a performer, when he stopped being on stage and, and decided to work behind the scenes instead. And did he like Hollywood? I mean, it was it's interesting that, that he did a movie once. I, I guess it was one of the, the live shows so that he could get more time on the Warner's corporate jet. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's it's I, I, I think he had a love hate relationship with Hollywood. I mean, he he once said that um, he found it a kind of dangerous place because uh, he, he said, you know, that he that living in a place where um, the guy who does your valet parking knows exactly what your first weekend grosses were um, <laughs> was, was, was very stressful and that um, he recognized in himself uh, the, the tendency when he spent a lot of time in Los Angeles to b- become kind of hostage to that to, to those markers of of status, you know that that he he certainly was status conscious enough so that um, he, he knew his own vulnerabilities would would you know that his ego um, that what he called the baby side of him would really come to the surface uh, 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 if he spent too much time in Los Angeles. So he did work there occasionally, and some of his most famous movies were shot on studio back lots, but. But I think when possible, he preferred to work elsewhere, particularly in New York. Talk a little bit about the diversity of his work, because this is another area where, in some ways, arguably, it's different from some contemporary directors. I mean, there's a wide, wide range of the kind of work that he did. It didn't fit into any particular genre necessarily. It didn't have any kind of specific creative arc or or career arc that he wanted to build. Talk about that. Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, and and part of that, of course, is a function of the fact that he worked with different writers rather than um, uh, write his own movies. But another part of it is... uh, about, in a way, the fact that, that Mike, although he directed until, you know, even just within the last 10 years, just before he died, was a kind of classical movie director in that, you know, all those guys like George Stevens and William Wyler and Howard Hawks, uh, who worked for studios, would work in different genres all the time. I mean, uh, Howard Hawks made uh, a musical, he made westerns, he made uh, detective films, and and Mike was a little bit the same way. He, he, he once said that if you had to categorize his work, you could say that it often centered on uh, a man and a woman around a bed. And there there is that 
common thread through a lot of his work. But when you look at his his body of work, which is only 18 or 20 movies, it's not huge the way some uh, people's uh, sort of list of films are. There are service comedies like Biloxi Blues. There are romantic comedies uh, like uh, Working Girl. There are very intense chamber dramas like Closer and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, he made... Uh, a couple of big films about war, Catch-22, and in a way, Charlie Wilson's War. Um, so, you know, what you see is, um, you know, other than obviously a bent for comedy um, and and a real interest in, in uh, the kind of complicated sexual dynamics of the modern world, um, what you see is just much to work with different writers in different styles or with different performers um, manifest in his um, in his body of work. You know, he even made a horror movie with, with Wolf. Uh, you know, he's one of the few sort of major directors uh, to have just decided to, to dabble in that and see what it was like. In all his body of work and all the time that you spent understanding him and talking to all these people in his life, which of the films really most represent who he was? You know, he said a really interesting thing at one point, um, and he was talking about Silkwood, which is not a movie that I necessarily uh, would have said represented um, who Mike was. But what he said was, it's always about you. It's always about who you are. And even if you don't realize it when you choose the project, um, you're, you're choosing a project because it, it represents um, something in your own life that, that you want expressed on film or something about the moment that you're living in that you want expressed. And, and it, it always strikes me that, you know, it's an amazing thing that Karen Silkwood, the character played by Meryl Streep, and Benjamin Braddock, the character played by Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate, were two characters that that were united by the fact that Mike felt a particular kind of identification with them and didn't realize it until well after he had made the movie. And, you know, Mike was certainly interested enough in human psychology so that it fascinated him and even kind of delighted him that he didn't know it at the time. He, he laughed at the fact that he didn't uh, realized that he he identified with the main character in The Graduate until years later, and and he was amused by it with with Silkwood too. Did he have a sense of wanting to create or caring about creating not just films that would be successful and memorable, but but really enduring characters? Um, I don't think so because I, I don't think he felt that. I mean, Mike was very clear about what a director did and did not do. And I don't think that he felt that character creation was his job. Uh, you know, he often said that nobody knows uh, on a movie set or in a rehearsal room for a play, nobody knows what a character should say better than the writer does. And that doesn't mean they've always figured it out, but it but it means that they should almost always be given the chance to try to figure it out. Um, so I don't think that um, I don't think that he saw that um, creating characters was his job. I think he felt that uh, creating the overall uh, the overall story, making it making it real, um, that was his job. I mean, he used to say that that the two questions a director has to answer are, "What is this really like?" No matter 
no matter how outlandish the situation that's being represented in the movie um, uh, that you're making, uh, what is it really like, and what happens next? You know, you he he did feel that it was the director's job to keep um, his eye on the story in terms of like. Is it moving forward? Is the audience being successfully put in a situation in a way that they can connect to, in a way that that can make them say, "Yes, this is what it's like." Whether it's you know to come home from college and feeling feel alienated from your your parents and your friends and to drift into an affair, or I guess to work in a publishing house and realize that what you really want to do is turn into a werewolf. You know if. <laughs> If you can find what it's really like and then tell the story in a way that makes the audience really curious about what's going to happen next, how it's all going to turn out, then he felt that as a director, you had done your job. Who were the filmmakers and the films that he admired? Um, He really admired uh, George Stevens. Um, He talked about him a lot, particularly... um, uh, the movie A Place in the Sun, which is you know the adaptation of Dreiser's American tragedy that that came out in 1950 and starred uh, Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor and Shelley Winters. That was a movie that not only uh, did Mike see by his own estimation between 100 and 150 times, but uh, when when uh, people would come to him and say, I want to direct a movie. Uh, you know, theater directors, for instance, who want to direct their first movie, he would say to them, okay, the first thing you do is um, go watch A Place in the Sun uh, 25 times, and then we'll talk, and then go watch it 25 more times. Uh, it was really kind of a sacred text to him. And um, in theater, in particular, uh, Ilya Kazan, the director uh, who first put... Um, uh, a streetcar named Desire on stage was incredibly important to him in terms of helping him understand what a director's role could be and and what a director could do to make the events of a play believable. So so Stevens and Kazan, I think, among many directors he admired, certainly William Wyler was on that list. Um, and again, it's understandable that he gravitated toward those directors. They didn't write. They worked in a lot of different genres. They were infinitely adaptable, and they were all known for eliciting fantastic performances from their actors. So he he definitely picked the right um, role models for the career that he ended up having. How did he view contemporary auteur directors? How did he see them? Um, I think I don't think Mike had a lot of patience with critical theorizing about the auteur theory, but I think there were a lot of um, different directors that that he admired, including directors that we would call auteurs. I mean, one, one thing that I think really distinguished Mike throughout his life, but especially later in his life, was he was never threatened by talent. He didn't view himself as being um, competitive with other directors, even you know, in the middle of his career in the 1970s, when he hit this lull, um, he would look at the work of a director like Robert Altman, who was really doing great work at the time, and not say, "Oh, I'm better than he is. Why is he getting all this attention?" But he would say to himself, "Why can't I do what he's doing?" And then, late in his career, when he really had nothing 
else to prove. Um, he was very enthusiastic about uh, younger directors, whether uh, it was a director like um, Steven Soderbergh, or with whom he became very good friends, or uh, Bennett Miller, who made um, Moneyball and, and Foxcatcher. Uh, you know, when 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 a young director's work excited him. He would reach out and and take them to lunch and talk about it. He he, he because he knew that they would be too shy to call him. Um, so so he made the effort in a way that a lot of established directors late in their careers do not do. And talk a little bit about how he saw roles for women, because in many ways, whether it was Silkwood or Heartburn, he was he was really ahead of his time in that regard. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, and sometimes to to his detriment critically, I mean, uh, a movie like Heartburn was dismissed by most male critics as a, a woman's picture. And, and that term was used really disparagingly um, as if to say, why would a director of Mike Nichols caliber be, be trifling with something so inconsequential? But Mike always saw women as uh, as worthy collaborators and as equal. I think you know you, you would have to go back to his partnership with Elaine May to, to understand the origins of that. I mean, it's a very unique thing for someone of Mike's age to have started his professional career with a woman as uh, not only an equal partner, partner but, but in his eyes, I think, the more creatively talented of the two of them. He, he really thought that she, um, she propelled their work together. Um, and and I think maybe because that laid uh, the groundwork for the rest of his career, he was always just very happy and energized around women, very comfortable working with them, very comfortable taking ideas from them, whether it was uh, Meryl Streep or Emma Thompson or Nora Ephron or uh, women behind the scenes. Um, his costume designer, Anne Roth, uh, over many, many years was very important to him and someone he really uh, listened to. Anthea Silbert, another costume designer. Um, I, I mean, he really paid attention to women uh, without condescending to them at all. And finally, Mark, how do you think, in terms of a body of work, how will Mike Nichols' career be remembered? Well, it's so hard to know because, of course, half of his career, the theater half, is is something that um, we can only recapture by talking to people about what those plays were like. The theater vanishes. Uh, movies stick around. But I, I think certainly the best of Mike Nichols' movies have already proven themselves to be uh, films that we can watch over and over and over again, uh, whether that's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or The Graduate or Working Girl or most most recently uh, a movie like Closer, which, which to my surprise turns out to have a kind of very avid uh, cult following among uh, people who are now in their 30s and, and grew up with that movie. So, uh, you know, I think you, you ultimately get judged no matter who you are. The best half of uh, your resume, and I think the best half of Nichols' resume uh, has already proven that it's it's built to last. Mark Harris, the book is Mike Nichols, A Life. Mark, I thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, thanks again for letting me talk about Mike. It's a pleasure.